tonight on Arena. Anthony Boyle on Apple TV's Masters of the Sky and Sexy Beast, Mr. and Mrs. Smith are some of the TV shows up for review. Masters of the Air is the new blockbuster series on Apple TV. From the creative team behind Band of Brothers and Pacific, Masters of the Air moves the World War II action to the skies and the aerial wars of World War II through the enlisted men of the United States 8th Air Force, or the Bloody Hundredth, as they became known. You will know that the series stars Austin Butler and Callum Turner, but the pivotal role of narrator and navigator Lieutenant Harry Crosby is played by Belfast actor Anthony Boyle, known to viewers for performances in Tolkien, The Plot Against America and Denny Boy. I'll be talking to Anthony in a moment, but let's hear him as narrator of Masters of the Air, introducing the squad, including Major Cleveland, played by Austin Butler, and Major John Egan, played by Callum Turner. Our unit was made up of four squadrons. Major Gail Clevin was the commander of the 350th. He and Major Egan were the unquestioned leaders of our entire group. Ev Blakely was a pilot from Seattle. Good Blakely. And big heart of Benny DeMarco from Philly. DeMarco? Hell of a landing. See you, Is that the fight? Yeah. Clater, you got money on this, right? I do. It's bad signal, though, man. Yeah, you don't say. Well, turn it up. Bombardiers James Douglas and Howard Hamilton were from the Midwest. Hambone. Major. Yep. Charles Crookshank, also known as Crank, was from New England. Hiya, Crank. Heard you boys had a rough landing. My best friend, Joe Bubbles Payne, and I were navigators, so location was important to us. Uh, Major, Lieutenant Crosby, uh, where are you from? Uh, we gotta put a pin in it. Bubbles and I were, you know, keeping the tradition alive. The guys from all parts. Yeah. <laughs> Casper, Wyoming. Cowboy State, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, it looks like you were the first, Major. Anthony Boyle there is Harry Crosby or Cros as narrator of Masters of the Air and I'm delighted to be joined by Anthony. Anthony, Masters of the Air comes from the same stable as Band of Brothers and Pacific. In other words, John Orloff, the writer, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, the producers. Mm -hmm. So how did you get to play this key role of Harry Crosby, who is really our eyes and ears? Well, first off, just for the listeners at home, you don't get it from that clip, but I've got really good 40s hair during that scene. So just letting just letting people know that that's going on in the background. Um, how, did I, how did I get involved with this, did you say? Yeah. How did I get involved? Um, I had done a TV show years ago called The Plot Against America, which was um, a thing I'd done on HBO with an owner writer. And I played a, like a 1940s cocky Jewish soldier. And the producers of Band of Brothers Pacific and now Masters of the Air saw me in that and had earmarked me for a role, but they didn't know which role it was. And uh, they sent me of Crosby. I um, I knew it was him that I wanted to play. So I made an audition tape with a friend in Belfast. Or actually, first I walked about Belfast for a week pretending to be Crosby, you know, walking into shops and trying to like you know order a pint of milk as him or whatever and see if I could get away with it <laughs> how did that um, go down well, in Belfast probably not very well I mean I thought it went well but they probably went who the hell is that wee lad from West Belfast <laughs> pretend to be American <laughs> we know him he lives four doors up from us um, he's not fooling <laughs> anyone but uh, but yeah I was trying to sort of you know get the accent down get the his, his movements down or whatever and then I made an audition tape and uh, luckily they, they let me be a part of it and Tom Hanks himself said he had known all your work and was very, he was among the people who had uh, spotted you for a role in Masters of the Air. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, yeah, he was, he's, he's amazing, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's an actor that, that, that most actors look up to and I think he's one of the best to ever do it. So to hear that from him and to have that sort of encouragement come from him meant the absolute world. 
Um, immersing yourself in the life of a, a real figure like Harry Crosby, who, um, you know, who left behind interviews and a memoir. Um, how did you, you know, besides doing a good impersonation of him in the streets of Belfast, how did you approach kind of taking on that role? Because there's an awful lot of responsibility as well as trying to be as good as you can in the role. Yeah, well, luckily, he had written a memoir called On a Wing and a Prayer, which if, if anyone, any of the listeners are interested in World War Two, it's 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 such a unique memoir because it's so funny. So much of the source material that I'd read about that time is very weighty and rightly so very um, sad and very heavy. He wrote with such such humor, such self-deprecation that you couldn't just you couldn't not fall in love with him on the page. So I had that as a really good source material. And then I also had this clip of him that his family very graciously sent over, which was like a 10-minute clip of him in the wing of a B-17. And he he talks about just his life and, and, and about his time in war. But it's 10 minutes, and each each time I went to set, which was like a 40-minute drive, I would watch that video, have my headphones in, try and get the accent down, try and get the cadence so I could mask what you're hearing now and sound like I'm from America. Yeah, because the thing about Crosby is he's not very good at the beginning at his job. <laughs> like he's yeah. the navigator and he has a problem, yeah. a problem actually that makes him really the person we as, as viewers can empathise with because we think oh, we might feel a bit dodgy if we were up in one of those planes. <laughs> yeah, well, he's not only fighting the Nazis, he's fighting uncontrollable air sickness, which is a real double whammy. He, um, yeah, he's he starts off as a real kind of, he doesn't feel like he's the right guy for the job, particularly because everyone else is so stoic and um, attacks the war with such a plum and such confidence. Uh, it, again, when I was reading it, I felt like every every other character felt like they were a band of brothers and Crosby felt like he was in an Adam Sandler movie. It, just, it just didn't feel like yeah, he... there's an awful he, lot of vomit in the cockpit. He, he, he would he would be, he was sick. He, you know, he, he sort of falls in love with a woman later on. He, he, there's so much sort of things that happened to him that I kept reading going, For really, is this, is this guy really in this picture? You know, and um, it just, it just was an absolute gift to play him. Uh, let's listen to him um, when he's fe- feeling not so well and under pressure. Here, uh, Lieutenant Crosby, played by Anthony Boyle, and his best pal, Bubbles, played by Louis Greatorex, wonders why his flight ended up over France. Crosby's air sickness had a major cause of it. France? How the hell do you manage that? How else, Bubbles? Puking my goddamn guts out. I thought that went away once you got gone. No, yeah, it usually does, but this time with the turbulence, kind of, I don't know. This time it didn't. I gotta be the worst navigator in the entire Army Air Force. Oh, Crosby, there's gotta be somebody worse at least one. Wrong side of the road, Lieutenant. Sir, welcome to England. Now you ask me, those two have watched Test Pilot a few too many times? You watched Test Pilot a few too many times. Yeah, didn't help. Well, at least we get to tell them which direction to point the plane. See you, bud. Normally the direct route. In your case, the scenic route. Oh, the scenic route. Oh, very funny. Anthony Boyle there and the cast of Masters of the Air. That reference there to that film, The Test Pilot, which was a Clark Mm -hmm. Gable film, I think. And that was something that inspired a lot of American young men to join the Air Force. This was even before America got into the war. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, totally. And when I spoke spoke to some of the veterans or when I had read any of their accounts, that was a film that a lot of them were like obsessed with. And the two characters that uh, Austin Butler and Colin Turner play, we had all decided that that, that would be a real big reference point for them. Um, and that Crosby would have wanted to have been like them, but but didn't have the, the sort of the coolness to, to get on board, you know? Yes, because he has it in his heart, hasn't he? Because I, did he join after Pearl Harbor? So he was he really, did. you know, v- very quick to, to join up. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, so many men did, yeah. And he, 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 he joined after that also, yes. 
So um, you introduced the troop there in the in the introduction, but give us a sense mm-hmm. of the logistics of it. We a lot of the action is in the cockpits of the plane. There's the pilots, and then there's you, the navigator, and your right hand man. What were the logistics of filming uh, Masters of the Air? Well, the logistics of filming were pretty crazy. We we showed up to a studio, which was this massive sort of air hangar, and we walk in, and they have this replica B-17 um, built, and it's on an electronic gimbal. So we go up on these, we sort of get hoisted 40 feet into the air, and once we're in the air, there's 360-degree screens surrounding us, which is this new technology called the volume stage. So it wasn't green screen so instead of traditionally you'd be acting to a green screen and imagining something in front of you we were actually seeing the german fighters very very small in the distance like a speck of dust and seeing them come closer and closer and closer and then by the time they were on top of us the the gimbal would be working and, and the plane would be rumbling and when we got hit with bullets we'd be flying all over the place so it was it, there was no expense spurred and it, fe- it felt as real as possible or as real as we could make it feel for us so there was no acting required, which is always good for an actor, you know, when you don't have to, to do much acting, you know. And these aren't the fighter pilots that we see. These are bombers. So these are huge planes. Yeah, yeah, massive. There would have been uh, 12 men on each plane. Um, another aspect that, that your character is also involved in is this idea that the role superstition plays. I mean, the the, uh, the attrition rate there was horrendous. So you can imagine how, uh, how the crews would hold on to any sense of chance or hope because the whole thing was such a sense of you're hoping you'll get through or ch- what role chance will play in it. Yeah, totally. Like when when I read uh, firsthand accounts, there was so much um, faith being put in, like certain, so much faith being put in, like certain talismans. You know, my my character has a little snow globe that his best friend gives him. That each time one of them goes up, they take the snow globe with them. You know, like and they promise each other, like I want that back. Uh, Bucky and Buck, the two characters, have a, a lucky um, two dollar bill that they bite the corners off the edges of, you know, there's these little things that these, these men really did in real life because when you're going up there and battling frostbite, battling the Nazis, you're in this very thin tin can, you're dropping bombs, you're being shot at, anything you could hold on to, you took it, you know? Yes, because the cold is another thing. There was a few scenes where some of the crew got terrible frostbite. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, that's something I didn't know when I came to the project, just how much you'd be battling the elements as well as everything else. Um, so did you, I, I know, did you work with the whole ensemble or were you very much in the groups in your planes, except for the social scenes? Like, did you get to work with, with Barry Keoghan and Fiona Shea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to work with Barry and Fiona, yeah. So that must have been uh, fun to have an Irish troop within within the larger cast. We had a little Irish mafia, you know, we had a little Irish WhatsApp going, you know, just, just for the Irish boys. It's always good to have a little home away from home. When you're on any set anywhere and you hear an Irish accent, it's always very welcome, particularly when it's someone like Barry or Fionn. And, you know, Barry and Fionn are just, I got to say, incredible actors. Like, and it was so, I was so happy to hear that they were on board of this project. And their performances in this are fantastic. And the role of narrator, then, does that call does that call on you to have particular skills? You know, because you really are the voice of the film. Presumably, you do that after all the other filming was over. Yeah, yeah, we've done it after, which 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 helped because you know the the way I wanted to sort of do the narration was was like as, as if Crosby was. 70 or 80 years old telling his kids by the fire or telling like a bedtime story you know I didn't and and Crosby so often in the piece is very like nervous or he's going through something so to have like the distance you know I I, I think I'd done the ADR I think I'd done the voiceover for it about a year after we wrapped so it was actually good to then sort of watch a bit of it from um from an arm's length and then speak about it you know a bit like an omnipotent voice of God watching the scenes you know yeah, it's a thrilling thing to do, I I would have thought. Yeah, it was good crack. And who would, would that be, have been the director who was with you doing that? 
It, yeah, the directors, yeah. Well, the, the various directors of the different episodes. Uh-huh. All right. And then yeah. you were also doing another historical character, John Wilkes Booth, in um, a series, Manhunt. He's the assassin, the man who killed uh, President Abraham Lincoln. When will we see that and what was it like playing him? An actor, was, obviously, and a killer. <laughs> an actor playing an actor. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it, it comes out March 15th. So the day that my Masters of the Earth finishes, Manhunt airs on the same platform on Apple TV. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was good to go from Crosby, who's such a hero mm-hmm. and such a beautiful soul, to go to play the first great American villain, you know, the first the first great assassin in, in America who was this horrible, racist, evil, narcissistic, just um, bad guy. Uh, so it was, a, it, it was a lot of fun to, to go from, from one extreme to the other. Do you think we'll see that soon? You'll see that on March 15th, the, 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 day, that, um, the day that Masters of the Air finishes that airs. Perfect St. Patrick's Day viewing, I'm sure. Then, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Ant- have a Guinness, have a, a meat pie, crack it open, have a bit of crack. Watch me with a moustache. And Good cry stuff. over Lincoln. And cry over a big old honest Dave. Yeah, why not? You started your career in Belfast. You, of course, had a role in Derry Girls. And we can see now that Kneecap are doing wonderful things too. Mm-hmm. The North of Ireland is having a moment. Do you think we might see you back there soon doing something? The North of Ireland is having a moment. Um, I actually saw Kneecap play a concert in the Ulster Hall two months ago or something. And they were phenomenal. Like major props to those boys and what they're doing for the Irish language and, and for Belfast and West Belfast in particular. Um, and I haven't seen their film yet, but they just sold it at Sundance, which is such an amazing achievement. Uh, would you see me do something in Belfast? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'd love to to do something set in Belfast, something written in Belfast. I, I'd love to do anything to do with Belfast. I, I love it. I, I had to go to America, to England, and sort of start a career there, but if the scripts were being made there or there, there's if any look if anyone's listening to the RTE show and wants to write a film about Belfast I'll do it there you go yeah move over Michael Fassbender kneecap 2 Fassbender. is all yours Anthony get out of the way kneecap 2 me and the boys let's do it <laughs> Anthony Boyle thank you very much and Masters of Cheers. the Air continues on Apple TV You're listening to Tuesday Night's Arena. This week's TV recommendations include two well-known movies that have been remade as TV series and a new thriller detective series that will be on RTE1. Sexy Beasts on Paramount Plus is a prequel series to Jonathan Glazer's iconic black comedy and crime film that starred Ben Kingsley and Ray Winston. It delves into the life of a crime bust bee in 90s London and stars our own Sarah Green playing the role of D.D. Harrison. Blackshore is a mystery thriller from the creators of Smothers starting here on RT this Sunday. It follows D.I. Fia Lucy, an ambitious detective played by Lisa Dwan, who is haunted by her own tragic past. And finally, we'll preview Mr. and Mrs. Smith, an action-packed spy comedy coming to Prime Video. It features Donald Glover and Maya Erskine taking on the roles of Mr. and Mrs. Smith that were played by none other than Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie in the film originally released in 2005. I'm joined now in studio by Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser and we'll start with Sexy Beast on Paramount Plus. Uh, Chris, you've had a chance to, as I think you have Jen, to look back on the original. Let's talk about the original uh, Glazer film and why it was so iconic and popular. Yeah, it was an original piece of work uh, released 24 years ago, directed by Jonathan Glazer, who uh, as of last week is nominated for a couple of Oscars now for the Zone of Interest. Um, And it was very much a crime drama that played by its own rules. It was practically an art house film. Uh, you had Ray Winston playing a, a chap named Gary Galdove. Uh, he's a former thief, uh, probably in his 40s. He's retired to Spain. He's obviously done enough for stolen enough that he can, you know, comfortably retire. Tans himself by the pool, uh, drinks a few beers in the evening, eats calamari with his, with his wife Dee Dee and, and their mates who were, were also gangsters. It's a very simple life and it's interrupted one day by an old accomplice, this sociopathic head of ball. His name is Don. We 
have an Oscar-nominated Ben Kingsley playing him, and he tries to pull Gal out of retirement. He tries to frighten them. He actually he phones up at first, but then comes out to Spain to frighten, and he can frighten anyone, uh, Gal into taking that one last job. He needs him to perform another bank robbery. And when is it set, Chris? It's set around the early no- early nineties or, or late nineties, uh, and it tells its story and it does everything it needs to do in eighty-eight minutes. So it's crisp, it's lean. It doesn't. Um, uh, it, there's not a single moment wasted in the film, but it never over explains itself and it never over explains too much about that background so it leaves an awful lot open to to interpretation and imagination and and for some reason uh, the people involved in this series have decided you know we, we always wondered what were Don and Gal doing in the years leading up to that retirement but uh, I don't think I actually wanted to see it on the screen but anyway Michael Kellyo who's the showrunner here he's decided to bring us back 10 years and to show us how they got there but you could imagine, because there were such fantastic characters in the film, that people might wonder, where did they come from? In a way, but I also think the best thing about Sexy Beast, and the reason why it works is because it's so contained, like Chris was saying. And it's, uh, you know, it's a flashlight on a moment in their lives. And because you don't know, there's not this, you're just... They're all, you know, untrustworthy narrators in the film. So you don't know, like, if, you know, the past that John is speaking about when he goes out to, to visit Gal, is it his imagination? Is it fueled by jealousy? Is it fueled by rage? How much can you trust these people? And and the point of Sexy Beast isn't really the backstory in itself. It's just how Jonathan Glazer, you know, handles these visuals, how he brings this gangster story in particular alive. And the way he does that is to through these, like, surreal set pieces where, you know, Gal is having these nightmares with this you know, fright and terrifying rabbit on a horse then there's also this amazing sequence where you know they're drilling into a a, a bathhouse underwater you know in the heist at the end and like does that need to happen? No, but it looks cool. And that was, you know, the flair. The, you're being introduced to Jonathan Glazer's, you know, his style, his eye, and it setting it apart from those kind of Guy Ritchie homages to those 1960s, you know, brick gangster films. And I think it did it so well that it's not about this. It's not about the backstory in itself. Okay. It's about that story. But whether we want backstory or not, we're getting, we're getting it, it in this. <laughs> so how do they set about it? Do all the old, are all the old characters there? Yeah, I mean, and it's a temp- to flesh out, you know, that the beginnings of Gal, but also his relationship with Don, which I found quite strange. I mean, in a way, I don't think somebody like Gal and Don would have been friends and it never no. appeared like they were friends in the film like it, beforehand it was just you know they both were associates of each other and then the way it works it kind of is like only fools and horses gone homicidal I mean it's said <laughs> in the early 90s and you do see Gal as this bottle blonde chain wearing petty thief he's more like you know Daryl from Birds of a Feather than that quiet menace that Ray Winston had and he wants to settle down with his fiancée Marjorie but he can't get up, give up the certain buzz of being a petty criminal and he gets involved with this very strange underworld kingpin, Teddy Bass, who's played by Stephen Moyer here. And um, in the film, um, it was Lovejoy himself, Ian yeah. McShane. And he asks them to pull off some high stakes robbery that apparently has something, you know, to do with kicking one to, you know, sticking one up to the aristocracy. But and which is a very cheap nod, I think, to the British class system. They want to stick that in there into the story. But I just found it quite disingenuous that, you know, Gal and Don would have this knockabout friendship. And I, I do think it's very hard to take someone like Ben Kingsley's character, which is, you know, a, a psychopath. It's it's not a, a three-dimensional character. He's, he's supposed to stand for everything that Gal fears about his past yeah. coming back to haunt him. So oh. to try and make him into a character is a very hard job. And I, I do feel sorry for uh, Eamon Elliot who has to, you know, line up to this task, which I don't but, know but if it Chris, works. A, a key character as well was, uh, or a key aspect is the love uh, Gal Dove played by James McArdle in this played by Ray Winston in the film and Dee Dee Harrison have for each other yeah and this this is the origin story of that relationship it is it's the Dee Dee and Gal uh, origin story and and it doesn't although this was probably the best aspect of the series because it's probably the the the, the only aspect of the series that isn't quite mean spirited and nasty um, it it still doesn't really work because we're in one way the series is telling us look at Gal he is the perfect criminal because he's actually a good egg and he's doing it for good reasons he wants to be you know he wants to share some of his fortune with his mom and dad he wants nice things he just he just and, and he wants to share his wealth you know and that, that that's a reason as well why he shouldn't be friends with Don because Don is just sociopathic and just just rotten to the core um but he's also 
cheating on his fiance, Marjorie, you know, they, they, they're supposed to be so in love. But the minute he sees Dee Dee, played brilliantly actually by Sarah Green, um, he's just gone. He's, he's, he's out the door. And that's, and we know that they're going to end up together. So that's, and that's another problematic thing. The fact that this is a prequel, there's no suspense. We know mm. how everything ends up for everyone. Okay. Um, so, but, so, but their, their story, that actually would make, if it actually, if you pulled this away from Sexy Beast, if the series was called something else, that story of a gangster and an adult film star falling in love and, and falling in with all the wrong people, that would actually work. Not uh, here though. Let's hear a clip of Dee Dee Harrison played by Sarah Green and here she meets Gal Dove played by James McArdle and asks him about his line of work. So what's your real full-time job then? Me? I'm a thief. Please don't tell me you're trying to steal my heart. <laughs> well, I'd never talk like that. I'm serious. I take things from people. You any good? Yes. You're always dishonest. Almost never. But I never want to lie to you. So tell me then. Where's your girlfriend tonight? Fiance. Fiance. She's out with her friends. Probably off pissed down the local. Sarah Green there as Dee Dee Harrison and James McArdle as Gal Dove. Did that relationship ring true or was it of interest to you, Jen? I mean, I think Sarah Green uh, does what she can with Dee Dee, um, who is supposed to be this symbol of, you know, this self-possessed woman trying to have agency over her own career. But I did find that kind of backstory a bit flimsy. I also just thought... That, you know, when you're talking about the industry that she's involved in, in the film, it it sounded more like amateur filmmaking or a kind of reader's wives, grubby kind of, you know, back, you know, back streets videos. Not what we see here, which is like this very boogie nights Americanized right, depiction she's involved of in the, the porn, porn industry. industry. But she and wants I, to not be a porn uh, star. She wants to she have wants agency to, oh, yeah, of her own yeah, career, yeah. and I, I found it a bit unrealistic in that way. But I and I I just felt that they didn't give her character enough to do. Um, it felt a bit flimsy for me. Um, and but I do think she was probably the most interesting in a way of all of them. Weirdly enough, but I, I wish they had given her more to do. Were you surprised that this that the Sopranos writer uh, got involved in this project? Can you see like comparisons or can you compare them? No, not at all. I mean, like Jonathan Gla- Jonathan Glazer was making uh, a film that uh, you know in the original that 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 uh, that guy Richie would never make. You know, we we have Jonathan Glazer's art house crime films, and then we have Guy Richie's geezer thrillers. This one ironically resembles those Guy Ritchie geezer thrillers or at least it, it wants to look like it it takes everything that you know people said looked cool about the original film and it just says well that will do but there's no you know it, there, there's nothing underneath it uh, so it is a little bit too flashy it feels like uh, the, the the actors are just playing fancy dress when it comes to you know impersonating or trying to play the characters that Ray Winston and Ben Kingsley played in the original I mean even Eamon Elliott's uh, Don it's just this weird cross between what Ben Kingsley did in, in the original and what Joe Pesci did in Goodfellas and it's it just doesn't work. And I um, felt like that it was really difficult that they, they made you want to find him lovable to some degree which yeah. by tacking on this very overbearing sickly backstory about his relationship with his sister Cecilia who's played by Tamsin Grieg doing her very best EastEnders impression <laughs> as his fierce bottle blonde sister. Um, but I, I just thought that was a little bit too much yeah. um, over egging the pudding when it comes to it comes to Don's character which I think is he should just solely be a psychopath and that's who yeah. he is. It reminds me of those Martina Cole adaptations that they used to do sure now in uh, Sky back in the day they used to have Tom Hardy in them and um, that kind of gangster you know vision rather than something that was very forward thinking and fresh that Jonathan Glazer was giving us. So I don't think you're going to give it huge stars. I don't think so. No, it's so weird that we have this eight hour series which is inspired by an 88 minute film. Mm. The 88 minute film did everything it was, it was supposed to that it intended to do. So the, the, the big question here is what's the point? I don't think there really is one. Okay, stars out of five? <laughs> uh, it has to be two. 
And you? Yeah, two. Two, okay. We might be giving that a miss. Uh, <laughs> next, we have Black Shore with Lisa Duan. This is the new RT1 series. She's D.I. Uh, Fia Lucy, uh, Lucy. And she's an ambitious detective, but she finds herself back at home in Black Shore. Why has she come to this? Well, it looks like a sorry pass at the beginning. Um, yeah, it does. I mean, she herself is spending too much time causing trouble in in Dublin so she's seconded off to a small town near where she grew up uh, Blackshore and she's ostensibly there to investigate the disappearance of Roisin Hurley who's a woman who has been the source of small town gossip for most of her life Um, but she is also returning to the town that she fled um, and working on a case that that ends up bringing up, you know, reminders of her past uh, that she's attempted to bury. And obviously with her landing back in town, everybody is aware of who she is and they're aware of her past as well. So it's it's a dual narrative in that way where she's investigating the case, but then also her past is there as well under the surface. So how much can you tell us, because we don't want to give away <laughs> any uh, too much of the drama, about her past? Did she flee the town what was the what was the reason she left? There was an extraordinarily grim tragedy, let's say, and her family, or at least uh, uh, immediate family members, are no longer around. Um, and she did flee her past. Uh, she takes off to, to Dublin for twenty years, and and we suspect that this is the first time that she's been home. And it's that thing of you know we've seen it in a million different crime series, and we've read it in a million different crime books, where you know the the person, the investigator from the big smoke, comes home, and everyone. You know, news has spread around the, the this small town within an hour that this character's back, and and for some reason they blame her, despite the fact that she was a victim of what happened. And I don't really want to want to spoil the details. Um, they blame her on things going wrong because obviously this incident brought an awful lot of unwanted attention to the town. So uh, so it's quite difficult being home for her. But that's a very good cue for this clip. It's, it's uh, Di Lucy played by Liz Duan, is questioned by a reporter Brian Doherty about her involvement in this new case. And we also hear James Whelan, played by Barry McGovern, who has his own trauma. Here we see Carrie leaving the Blackwater Hotel on the night Roisin Hurley died. We need to establish the nature of their relationship. But our main priority is finding Carrie and making sure that she is safe. G.I. Lucy, how would you respond to questions about your suitability to lead this investigation, given your personal history with a similar case here in Blackwater? You mean the death of my family? This investigation has nothing to do with that. And your line of questioning is no relevance. Next question, A young woman is missing. Just as Chloe Whelan, your babysitter, vanished the day before your father committed the other murders. It's widely believed your father was involved with Chloe Whelan. No, 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 no. How dare you drag my daughter's name through mud like that? You are a disgrace. Thank you, everyone. I need to get back to work. Superintendent Shanahan will take any further questions. Well, can you at least answer why you especially were appointed to this case? Look. We are seeking the public's assistance in finding this young woman. Please help us find Carrie. Thank you. And you were being so good about keeping <laughs> the plot under wraps. So we've told every bit of it and that's uh, not at all every. It just gives a hint of that big connection mm, between yeah. her own life, her own personal tragedy and this case she's involved in. Now, Lisa Duane, I know her like as a stage actress yeah. from uh, interpreting the works of Samuel Beckett. How does she do as a as a detective? I mean, I think with her character, at the very first instance when we meet her, you know, we know she means business. She's wearing a leather jacket. She has her hands in her pockets. Like there's no niceties <laughs> with her. And we've seen this kind of gruff but fair template played out you know, quite a bit over the years. And it has become almost a cliche in itself. You have everybody from, you know, Jane Tennyson, like Catherine Kaywood, even Sarah Lund from The Killing. And, you know, and I don't think every character, every female detective has to be you mean in she has mold. to be tougher than yeah, a man? Yeah, than a man. I don't think we, we have to generally do that really anymore, as, per se. Um, and I, But I do think it's an in for people with the character. You know, it gives it that kind of familiar feel. But I do hope as the series progresses, there will be more complexities drawn out. I know that, you know, she's tackling her feckless colleagues. They're fairly disgruntled about her being back, including Garda Keane Furlong. He's played by Rory Keenan. And he doesn't take kindly to, you know, Lucy giving orders, especially in the town where, you know, she 
fled and he remained mm. and she kind of marks that down as her ambition because she left the town and he kind of st- stuck around so yeah. there's a lot of ruffling feathers there between them and it is a small town so mm. it's full of rumour as we heard in that clip and also y- you've you've mentioned it already and that idea that a person's reputation can be ruined through rumour you're saying I think Jen that it, that was raising interesting themes that you hope that they might progress 100% I think the story of the disappearance of a local woman like Roisin throws up some really interesting themes that are very specific to Ireland and they're things that you know our drama series maybe haven't touched on so much or grappled with before you know and it's steering away from depicting it, it, it's steering us into a territory where we know that you know women in Ireland can be depicted and uh, as and gossiped about and ridiculed because of their status, you know, their single status or in small towns. And then there is an Ireland out there that is shrouded in misogyny and silence by communities. And that's all in there in this show. And obviously with, you know, Lucy, Detective Lucy's past, there is this other really good thread, I think, about our own thirst for crime stories and our own inherent nosiness and that can turn somebody else's tragedy into this national conversation point. And I think that's really clever. And I like the way that these, you know, teams that maybe Irish dramas haven't delved into enough previously are being analysed and I think that's really promising. It comes from the people who brought us Smother. Yes. It, and we've had a lot of, of detective series on that the Sunday uh, RT1 slot now. Yeah. Does this stand out for you, Chris? It, it kind of feels like an amalgamation of them all and it feels like an amalgamation of every story we've kind of come across about, you know, this uh, uh, frazzled, tortured, troubled investigator who returns to the rural up bringing just as a big case is kicking off you could look at uh, Gillian Flynn's Sharp Objects you could look at The Droid The Gone um, so there you could I mean there are elements in there too of, of, of True Detective so I, I can't fault its ambition um, but I just would like to start seeing and I think we will start seeing it as the series progresses an identity of its own um, I think it, it needs to find that because there are some interesting characters here there's some great themes here um, I, I think maybe more of an Irish flavour people tuning in who will want to see something like Smother Smother had that Irish flavour this needs to maybe put aside the Americanisms, put aside the characters speaking like something from an American crime drama and remember how Irish people speak and then it will be effective because there is a good story here, there are some good performers um, it just needs to settle and it'll be fine. I think you you agree with that Jen. Mm, I think yeah. you know but I also think it's about time that we had our own kind of little Nordic noir you know story in itself because we have the scenery and we have the melancholy <laughs> inclination in this country so why not and I think yeah let's do this let's yes. see where it goes Stars out of five? Um, I'll give it a three promising three Okay, and from you, Chris. The same, I'll stick with it, three. Okay, and finally, we're previewing Mr and Mrs Smith, which is quite embargoed. It's an action-packed spy comedy coming to Prime Video with Donald Glover and Maya Erskine playing the lead roles that many will remember portrayed by Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie in the original film released in 2005. Why are people not coming up with original material? Why again is this now something that's based on on something that we felt? I mean, I don't think it was a very good film, but it did uh, spark the relationship between Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie that upset so many people for so long. I think it's a, a familiarity uh, reason, like familiar IP people just, they are aware of some part of the story, some outline of the story and it's it's easier to get something made, I think, these days with a name, a familiar name, rather than something original. So you're kind of just trusting something up in a borrowed outfit. You're making this Frankenstein's monster. Whereas with one on one hand, I think with Sexy Beast, it didn't work. But with this, I think because Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the... Brangelina version if for want of a better term it was this kind of schlocky action flick um, it can lend itself to something completely different then and this is completely different it's not what you're expecting it's not it, you know I think that film has so much notoriety around it because of the relationship that came from it and it kind of takes away from a film that's, that's pretty basic you know, action flick, whereas this is is a very different thing altogether. I, I'm not quite sure that I remember Mr. and Mrs. Smith that well, but they were married yeah. uh, at the beginning, whereas 
this differs from that. So there are there are people who have never met before yes. and they meet to become uh, assassins. Yes, that's it. And I don't blame you for not remembering Mr. And Mrs. Smith. I mean, 19 years on, I think the, the, the one thing that people took away from it is, oh yeah, that's the film where Brad and Angelina met and fall in love and Jennifer Aniston was left, left to the side. What happened there? Oh, but in the never film... Never forget. <laughs> um, but in the film, uh, the, the John and Jane Smith, they do meet at the beginning and they fall in love and they marry and then years later they're unhappily married and they don't know that the other person is a spy and when they find out they're, they have this mission that they have to kill one another and that gave the film its most famous scene where they just destroy their house trying to kill one another and actually reignite their, their relationship in the process this one you have uh, Donald Glover and Maya Erskine Donald Glover is actually the co-creator here the co-showrunner writer um, they are anonymous spies or at least they've been involved in some sort of top secret government agency um, they do these interviews at the same time that ask them are you willing to sacrifice are you willing to leave your old life behind your your families to basically pose alongside a stranger as a married couple they say yes and all of a sudden they end up in this home together they have a marriage certificate they live in a brownstone in Manhattan and they will basically live as a couple and conduct these high risk missions on a weekly basis all the while getting to know one another Yes, getting to know one another, which we hear in this clip. John Smith, played by Donald Glover, asks uh, Jane Smith, played by Maya Erskine, about the catchphrases she uses when she kills someone. Earlier. Yeah. When you uh, ran down that guy. Uh-huh. And you shot him. Uh-huh. Did you say, see you in hell? Before you... I need to say it to go there. Don't make fun of me. I'm not. I just was wondering if... if I needed a catchphrase, too. Okay. See, this is why I don't like killing people in front of you. Because you you always do this. No, I'm, I'm... No, it's fine. I just want a catchphrase, and I need help. Time's up, buttercup. I like yours more. That's funny. It is. And I think I like the way that they're not these sultry, you know, sophisticated individuals. They are the complete opposite. They're two very insular, insecure misfits that are partnered together. And I think that's what this series is more about. You know, you do get your action sequences. Don't worry about that. But it's also served with this very thoughtful side of storytelling about loneliness, what it means to know someone. Can you really know a person at all? Can you know someone's true nature? And it's really about them getting to know each other and understand each other. And I I just thought it was, you know, really promising. I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was something so different from what it was based on that it actually, it's something even better. It's something much, much better and much more substantial. And it has an amazing supporting cast. Everyone from Paul Dano, John Turturro, Michaela Cole, it's stacked. So uh, let's uh, let's not give away any more of the plot. Just give stars <laughs> from you, Jen. I'm going to give it a four out of five. Four out of five, and for you, Chris. I think three in the early stages. I'm looking forward to seeing more, though. Okay. Well, my thanks to Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser. To mention the series again, Sexy Beast is out now on Paramount Plus with new episodes every Thursday. Blackshore will be starting this Sunday, the 4th of February on RT1 and the RT Player. And for Mr and Mrs Smith, all episodes will be streamed on Amazon Prime from Friday, February 2nd. It's just coming up to 10 to 8. Rachel Dowling and Sarika Furlong are estranged sisters, Bridget and Frances, in a new play, Happiness Then, due to open at Bewley's Café Theatre in Dublin in February. The women meet up in a wine bar for the first time since the reading of their mother's will. As the evening goes on, it becomes clear that Bridget and Frances have a lot more on their minds than their mother leaving a large sum of money to her carer. Happiness Then is written by Elizabeth Moynihan and directed by Liam Halligan. I'm delighted that Elizabeth Moynihan joins me in studio. So can we start with this idea? Two sisters at odds. We think possibly over their mother's will, but there's a lot more as you dig deeper in the play. Absolutely. It's like these two sisters are estranged. They, there's no love lost between them. Although as the play goes on, you realise that Frances is begging and thirsting for a relationship with her sister and she has brought Bridget to the wine bar for some dinner in order to mend fences. 
And the uh, the, the mother uh, has died, obviously, but yes. the mother is a very strong presence in the play. She is, and um, she hasn't been the best mother. She's the kind of mother who speaks sweetly, but is absent, is not available, allows her six-year-olds to walk herself to school in the morning, which I know in, you know, with the... With, in current times, that would be tantamount to your child being taken into care. But back in the 60s and 70s, in the 70s when I was a little child going to school, um, it was kind of par for the course. You know, you took yourself to school at six years of age. But um, there's a lot of resentment. Frances is full of resentment towards her mother's um, physical presence, but emotional absence. OK, well, let's listen to a clip you kindly provided us with with two clips from the play. So here, Rachel Dowling as Bridget and Circa Furlong as Frances. Uh, on, it's a rare occurrence for these sisters to meet up, though Frances would like it to happen more often. Mm-hmm. She's still wondering why their mother left Gedris, her carer, 50,000 in her will. You look well, Bridgie. Hydrofacials. Well, I'll keep doing it because it's really working. Okay, let's knock it off topic. Why did you invite me here? I thought it might be nice to process things. I haven't seen you since the will was read. I'm the executor of Mum's estate. I have nothing to process. Well, I do. Why didn't you warn me? It wasn't my place. Would it have been a stretch to give me a heads up? Gedris was very good to her. She was in a home. Before that. He went above and beyond. Well, I would like to know exactly what Gedris did alongside his duties as her carer that was worth leaving him 50 grand. What are you implying? Do I need to draw you a picture? She was 80. So? You have sex on the brain. I'm on HRT. <laughs> Rachel Dowling as Bridget and Circa Furlong as Frances there in Elizabeth Moynihan's new play Happiness Then. So these are two middle class women, but yes. they have their own problems. Frances is a bit too fond <laughs> of the drink. Absolutely. Well, you know, that's a polite way of putting it. Frances is an alcoholic. Um, a very highly functioning alcoholic, but an alcoholic nonetheless. And although Bridget loves her sister, she's had a lifetime of this. Now her own son has been, um, uh, has left the home and is living on the street. He's an addict. So I think it's just a bridge too far for her to endure her sister's drinking and um chaotic, erratic behaviour. Yes, and because they're sisters, of course, when Frances, uh, when they were younger, mm-hmm. Frances being a bohemian, oh, Frances yeah, party being drinking, girl, yeah, was attractive fun. to to Fionn, the, the, yes. the, the son of... Uh, of um, Bridget. Of Bridget, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she was a great aunt. She was the fun aunt. Um, you know, they'd smoke a joint together, all that sort of kind of fairly... Um, tame drug behaviour. But then, of course, it escalates and uh, Fionn ends up on the street um, because his parents can't deal with his drug addiction anymore. And he has graduated to harder drugs, although I don't mention any particular drug in the play um, because the the trends in drug taking are moving so quickly now that I didn't want to date the play by saying one drug over another. Now, um, Frances's life has also gone through tumultuous changes and she is coping with that. How much can you tell us about that? Well, basically, I'm not giving anything away when I say that Frances has split up with her husband who has decided to transition. And... um, it's, of course, Frances makes it all about her because uh, she's the one left behind, the trans widow, as the expression, um, you know, that that's the expression that people use for the woman left behind. And I hadn't seen that character depicted anywhere in theatre. And so I just wanted to address that subject. I, I'm interested in, you know, what happens to the people left behind when you transition as a 50-year-old person. 
um, and what it leaves, what yes, it leaves and behind, and how, the, how, for, how what kind of relationship parties, they can have for yeah. both people in the relationship. It's very painful to have to leave your partner if you identify as a woman and you want to live your life as a woman, and the person that you've been in a relationship with have been married to doesn't want to accept you um, as the gender that you feel is your gender. Let's hear another clip from the play here. We have Rachel Dowling as Bridget and Sarika Furlong as Frances. I'm not driving. I don't like it. What? That I took public transport. You breaking our agreement. Cut me some slack, Bridget. This is a nightmare. Mum's will was a shock to me too. 50 grand to get us. I'm talking about the service in here. That waiter is ignoring us. Quivon is flat out. Look at this place. It's round. Quivon? Yes. You know him? Yes. Oh. How long? He's a painter. Dear God. I followed him on Instagram while I was waiting for you. <laughs> Instagram? <laughs> so you don't know him, really, do you? Why are you interrogating me? I'm not. I worry, that's all. Then stop. Worry doesn't change the outcome of anything. Waste of time. Rachel Dowling as Bridget and Sarka Furlong as Francis there in Happiness Then. Uh, the title of the play. Yes. Tell us about the source, the, the, what the title means and where it came from. Well, I was uh, spending way too much time scrolling through Twitter one day and I came across Anthony Hopkins' maiden voyage, if you like, on Twitter X, as it is called now. But this is a few years ago. And he it was the first time he'd made a clip for any social media platform. And he was talking about a film that he had been in, Shadowlands, I think it was 1993. And he had revisited the set or the hotel that they'd all stayed in. He was in the foyer and he was reminiscing, piece to camera, saying um, how some of the the cast and crew had were no longer with them. And he was, you know, emotional and nostalgic. And he said, happiness then, the pain now. And it was just such an affecting line. That was the genesis of the play. I just, once I had the title, I just thought, OK, I, I think I know the story I want to tell here. So there's a payback for happiness. Absolutely. I mean, I know it's a very nihilistic way of looking at things, but um, certainly Bridget feels that. And I think a lot of middle class people who have the perfect children, the perfect life, when things go wrong, it's hard not to think like that. It's hard not to go, well... Okay, I've had this charmed life. I guess this is the punishment. Well, at least that's the way Bridget looks at it. But everybody gets their stuff to deal with. Um, it's just Bridget in particular. I think she's lived this charmed life for years and now it's all fallen apart. I, I think you're interested as well that the that the women are in their late 40s and 50s. Early 50s, yeah. yes. I, I'm very interested in portraying women of that age that's the age I am I'm older than Bridget and uh, these are the stories that I want to tell these are stories that I can identify with you know certain elements are of this story are biographical um, so uh, there's a little bit of me I suppose in all my work you know um, so yeah that's the kind of work that I'm interested and these are the characters that resonate I think and aren't seen nearly often enough on stages in in theatrical settings in Dublin and elsewhere well, Elizabeth Moynihan, thank you very much. Happiness Then is at Bewley's Café Theatre Dublin from the 12th to the 22nd of February. Further details at Bewley'sCaféTheatre.com. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Liam Murphy and Paula Shields. James Feeney is on sound. Ollie Hamilton is the broadcast coordinator. And tonight's show was produced by Reg Luby. And John Creedon is next after the news at 8.